1: today founded the Wild Dolphin Project to study free-ranging Atlantic spotted dolphins in their world, on their terms. The organization was created as a research project in 1985, incorporated in 1988 in California and then in 1990 in the state of Florida. It was created to provide a broad funding vehicle for long-term field work with dolphins. It's a scientific research organization that studies and reports on a specific pod of free-ranging Atlantic-spotted dolphins. Objectives of this long-term, non-invasive field research are to gather information on the natural history of all of these dolphins, including behaviors, social structure, communication and habitat and to report what we have learned to the scientific community and the general public. She's also working in the research faculty at Florida Atlantic University Department of Biological Sciences and Department of Psychology. I'm also joined by Pat O'Brien today, veteran investigative journalist Denise Herzing and Pat O'Brien, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you David, good to be with you.
1: Dr. Herzing, could you give me a Overview, please, of your current work. I see that you are a great author of many books and you are very much involved in research in the dolphin population. Could you tell our listeners whereabouts you are working today?
3: Yes, of course. Well, my primary work has been in the Bahamas, which is due east of Florida. So I'm actually on the east coast of Florida. And for the last Uh, 25 years, I've been working with two resident uh, communities of dolphins, Atlantic spotted dolphins and bottlenose dolphins. And the Bahamas is actually relatively pristine and non-impacted by humans, unlike what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico, of course, right now. Uh, My work has primarily been about long-term monitoring, uh, identifying individuals, tracking them through generations of their lives and doing acoustic and behavior work underwater to really see what their lives are like underwater, how they communicate, and how they really get along in a healthy society in the wild.
1: The Wild Dolphin Project uh, that you began around 1990, and and I do see that one of your great heroes is Jacques Cousteau. Uh, What are you attempting in the long term with this organization?
3: Well, really the main goal is to tell the story of wild dolphins and what it's really like to be a wild dolphin, both as a, a species and as an individual in a complex society. Um, my personal interest is in intelligent animals and what they do with all those big brains. Um, we're you know, used to thinking about primates, humans, and, and chimpanzees and how we use our brain capacity, but I was always curious as a child Uh, What other minds would be like, and these guys in the water, they really are the primate equivalent, uh, only they're in this alien environment we don't quite understand.
1: What is it specifically that we can learn from the dolphin community?
3: I think there are a lot of things we can learn from the dolphin community. Um, One is how they get along in their environment and with each other. Of course, you might say that about a lot of animals, but because dolphins are highly intelligent, highly complex, highly social, You know, they have long childhoods, they teach their young, uh, they have all the complexities of a really advanced society. I think we could learn some of their sophisticated techniques of resolving conflicts and getting along with each other and showing compassion, which they do.
1: What is the difference here? What is it about the orcas? Is there any relation between the two animals?
3: Oh, of course. Uh, orcas are actually the largest member of the dolphin family which encompasses um, about 30 species of dolphins so a dolphin is not a dolphin, you have bottlenose dolphins, we know from captivity and coastal work uh, we have offshore species like I work with, spinner, spinner dolphins and spotted dolphins that live in different environments and then the orcas of course have been well studied in the Pacific Northwest uh, of the United States where we know they have Uh, matrilineal societies again long-term bonds so again a lot of parallels Um, orcas are just sort of the top of the food chain they would actually eat other dolphins
2: in their world
1: the organization that you run could you uh, let me know or let the listeners know what the restrictions what the challenges are with an organization like this in obviously following people like Jacques Cousteau, Jane Goodall how difficult is it to continue the research in the long term?
3: Well. It's certainly been a, a struggle. I mean, the Wild Dolphin Project is a nonprofit, so we do get funded by grants and individuals. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes hard to uh, explain to people how important long-term research is. And again, because of what's happening in the Gulf, I can see no better explanation. You know, if you don't know what you have, you're not going to know what you have to lose or what you do lose. So, yeah, there's certainly struggles, like everybody these days, with funding, with really with the message, you know, how how important is it to learn about our natural world? You know, we really don't know that much about certainly offshore species of dolphins and whales, and we
1: need to know more to protect them. And of course you work between the faculty uh, and your work out in the field. How does that relationship work in terms of getting that funding?
3: Um, you know, it's a good relationship. Uh, again, you know, we get a lot of support from small family foundations and individual, individual benefactors that see the value of long-term work. Um, you know, I have graduate students that do projects out with us to help with the work and analyze data, so it's, it's a combination of field work and lab work and, and teaching.
1: Now as far as the Gulf of Mexico is concerned, we're obviously seeing a catalystic sort of situation, a, a dreadful problem there. Do you think that there is enough being done in the scientific community, perhaps enough being done uh, with the relationships between aquariums around the country, with uh, think tanks around the world, in terms of how what is left in that area can be retained, can be saved?
3: Well, I mean, there's a few things going on, of course. Um, First of all, what's going on is really reactive instead of proactive. You know, there has not been a lot of work certainly on cetaceans, on whales and dolphins out there. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, facilities that are kicking in and taking injured animals, stranded animals, in the case of turtles and dolphins, and I know there's a fair amount of sampling being done now in areas where the oil hasn't hit. You know, these are, these are procedures to look at long-term impacts. The shame of it is, is that these things really should have been done as baseline work long ago, and that's one of our lessons, I think, in this, is to really have get under our belt, so to speak, before we have these
2: potential disasters on our
1: doorstep. Now, in your view, what do you think are the potentials of this current situation in the Gulf on the patterns of dolphins? Is it likely that it could impact dolphins as far away as in the Atlantic? Uh, well, uh,
3: well, your first question... Um, Basically, the profile of the Gulf of Mexico is that there are uh, shallow areas where there are a few species of dolphins, such as bottlenose dolphins and Atlantic spotted dolphins, say under about 200 meters, 600 or so feet of depth of water. Then there are offshore species, of which there are many, Um, and these are animals that live in deeper environments, greater than 200 meters or so. They're the deep diving fish and squid eaters. And what's happened in the Gulf, basically, is that we only see or have seen animals that have stranded as part of the fatalities. So there have been about 66 dolphins now, I think, that have stranded. And there are normal strandings, but certainly some have been linked to oil. Um, In my view, that's probably the tip of the iceberg. Um, What the real shame is that offshore, there are probably tens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of animals that we are not witnessing as to their um, process in this oil spill. I know there have been, there's been a little aerial footage by a few um, environmentalists out there documenting the schools of dolphins swimming in the oil or a sperm whale in the oil, and they've reported very horrible things. Um, dolphins belly up already dead, dolphins struggling to breathe. You know, and we have to remember that you know, dolphins are mammals. Of course, they breathe air, they nurse their young. They live in these large groups, and they don't necessarily swim away from oil, even though maybe they'd like to. Some live in certain areas for certain reasons. They have fish there to
2: eat, they're residents, which is migratory.
1: In regards to dolphins specifically, if they have been impacted severely with this critical situation that we have, what is the recovery time in your mind, not only in dolphins, but into the food chains in that area? Are we talking decades?
3: Personally, I think we're talking a century, as um, scary as that is to say, you know, there are short-term impacts and long-term impacts. Short-term impacts for specifically dolphins and probably many other um, marine lives is acute. It's the dolphins and whales that are already dead from breathing toxic fumes. They've already sunk to the bottom. They're out of sight, out of mind. We'll never know what isn't there. Then there are the long-term impacts of the food chain, and of course, you know, it affects people as well as animals. So we're talking about toxicity in fish and squid and you know, plankton, all those things that are maybe the slow killers. You know, they're, they're the toxins that are analogous to the ones already in our environment, like PCBs or DDT that dolphins specifically accumulate in their blubber. You know, a lot of these compounds are lipophilic. You know, they go to fatty molecules. And so dolphins are sometimes little toxic waste zones
1: it's got so much toxin in a lover. Have you in this been creating or developing models as to suggest what those long-term effects are? Perhaps looking at models that suggest time frames or benchmarks on the oil in the Gulf reaching the Atlantic seaboard?
2: Well,
3: I know NOAA has done some modeling, um, although it hasn't happened yet, so that's been quite an off prediction. Um, you know, it's all a matter of if the oil gets in the gulf, in the uh, loop current. And that loop current then would take potentially the oil, although it might be a bit dissipated, up the gulf stream. So it's quite dependent on weather and current. I fully expect it to come around this coast. I don't know if it's going to get to the Bahamas where my long-term work is. Um, we're hoping it, it won't. Um, but between the dispersants and the oil itself, there's a lot of toxicity going on in the water column as well as the surface. So, you know, it's just kind of an unknown.
1: You know? Now, you're talking about toxicity. Are you talking a combination of the chemicals being used, this corrective material and the methane? Are they all so bad at this stage that they in themselves, notwithstanding the oil, could have a huge impact?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure about the methane, but certainly the dispersant itself is toxic and toxic, mixed with oil. And, you know, it's regrettable we didn't find a less invasive destruction this person to use because that really is going to you know, doubly, triply impact
1: everything. Is the scientific community being given access to data from the Gulf and, and data to these models that are perhaps suggesting a time frame on on how quickly not just the oil but this contamination of the food chain can reach the Atlantic seaboard and beyond?
3: Well, my understanding is, is that some of the government scientists do have access because they're working closely with DP and, and uh, other groups. The sort of independent scientists, I think, have been a little restricted or they're required to sign uh, disclosures as to not release data on their own, which is a little disturbing when you're a scientist. You know, data is everything and you want to share it and understand and analyze it independently. So I think. It's a little horrifying that things are being shut out both to the media and to scientists because, again, you know, especially in these offshore areas where we apparently are restricted on many levels, it's a big concern.
1: I'm going to turn to Pat O'Brien shortly here, but before I do, what are your own personal feelings about the way that this has been handled in the Gulf not only in terms of the dangers for people, but also for the food chains themselves, for that whole massive ocean?
3: Well, you know, I think it's a huge wake-up call. You know, part of it's a political wake-up call that we should be monitoring these agencies and corporations much closer. I mean, we have laws and we have plans. And they had plans and something happened and the fox is in the hen house, so to speak. So we need to really enforce and monitor these things to prevent them in the future. Secondly, I think the government gave up a lot of control and options when they really re- let DP sort of handle it, because you know, it's our ocean and our environment that's being destroyed. So I think we need um, less, <laughs> less interaction between corporations and government and more real action that really uh, corrects the damage if we can.
1: Do you think that this situation is going to likely change the world, Denise? Do you think that our whole way of thinking, our sense of consciousness, the way that business, the corporate mansion, as it were, operates?
3: You know, I, I really don't know. I like to think so. I think, I think it's, really, it's really a good example of the root of many of our problems, and that is we forget we're interdependent with nature, and it's not in the formula that's calculated in all our processes. You know, we don't think about nature and animals when rules and regulations are made to a certain extent. And I think we really need a new ethic that truly, truly incorporates the voiceless, you know, the voiceless ecosystem, the voiceless animals. I don't know. You know, the people I know, of course, are talking about it and working on it. But I don't know if the average American or person out there is thinking, well, what can I do or how do I Help make a voice. I mean, I, I think it's. I think it's going to be honestly. I think it's going to determine if humans survive because this is a perfect example of a practice gone awry and a philosophy perhaps gone awry.
1: May I bring in Pat O'Brien, Pat, as an incredibly well-versed um, investigative reporter. You have been following this situation now for over ninety days. What is it in hearing what Denise has to say in regards to the food chains and in regards to these beautiful mammals, the dolphins? What is it that we are missing now in that area? You're from Florida. What is it that people are not aware of and why?
2: Well, again, I think, David, one of the things is that the media has really dropped the ball on this. uh, And Dr. Huizing kind of alluded to it a bit before. Now, I'd pose a question to her. Dr. Herzing, do you feel that here in the state of Florida, we're getting news that gives us any kind of a, an awareness that there's a, a serious problem out there?
3: No, I, I would say we hear a lot about the impacts on the pristine beaches and how it's going to make the beaches ugly, and, of course, the poor people there and, and jobs. But I think what is missing is the impact on the environment, part, partly because of the shutout. You know, when you're a biologist like myself, That's what you're concerned about primarily. And I really think, I mean, everybody loves dolphins for the most part and turtles. And, you know, our marine environment, of course, in Florida is hugely important on many levels. And I think people would be aghast if they really knew the consequences of what's going on out there.
1: What about in your area there, Pat? You have some pretty distinctive aquariums. Are they business as usual? Is business in general uh, working as if there are no real effect in that ocean next door to your state?
2: Well, I, again, there's... Uh, I know that there's a lot of activity, as we called a number of different uh, marine uh, research uh, people to see that there is, there is activity. If they're aware that... Um, they're aware pretty much that this corrective product when mixed with the oil is extremely poisonous and there's a huge concern about that um but I do not feel that we're getting any kind of awareness regarding you know the state um I've uh, employed our I've employed our, our um Charlie Chris our governor our our senators to stand up and uh, try to stop this Correxit product from being used. It's, it's not. It's still being used and it is just causing even more damage by the day. And, um, the, the media is, is just absolutely oblivious to what the potential of this could be if a hurricane comes up into the Gulf and, and if were to surround the, the state of Florida um it is it's, I, coming out of the news business from years ago and and uh, I just I am absolutely appalled by the way they're handling the story as if uh it's just a little oil spill out there. these are if every four days we have an Exxon Valdez happening out there at this deep water horizon. And not only that, but they're putting this, these chemicals in, and plus the methane—they're not even talking about the incredible amounts of methane that are going in uh, this uh, Gulf, and that are literally sucking the life out of uh, so many animals that need oxygen. The, the methane going into the water uh, depletes the oxygen. Uh, this is a, this is a, a proportion that I just in my my heart Uh, i'd swim with the dolphins i was talking to denise earlier today and uh when you when you swim with them and they tow you around and, and they look into your eyes and they 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 have a way to play with you these are brilliant animals i think they're probably smarter than we are um that they are they're animals that that run the oceans um and they're their cousins, the whales. Uh, you know, nobody challenges them. And they are they are king of our planet, and and a monitor of our planet. And the uh, reason why I wanted to see Doctor Ersing on today is to get a, a sense for what we are about to lose with with this this reckless um, uh, endangerment that. Uh, the government and BP has put us there.
1: Let me just return to Dr. Herzing, in geographical terms, I'm trying to to get a picture of how the food chains that are infected can affect dolphins in the Atlantic and further afield. Is there any timeline on that in the way that they can in the long term be affected because of these materials, because of the food chain that is so infected?
3: Well, again, it would probably depend on a lot of factors. It would depend on how dispersed the whole oil and chemicals are by the time they come around to this coast. It would depend on the species of dolphin and if they're migratory or resident. Uh, For example, migratory animals would probably depend on uh, food on the bottom, such as bottom fish and reef fish, or migratory animals are more likely to follow fish schools that migrate up and down the coast or that are in the Gulf Stream. So it really depends on what their food source is. I, I mean, there's no doubt it's going to be a major impact in my mind. Um, it's going to be slower because, again, by the time it gets to the East Coast, things will have dispersed and we're probably going to see more long-term effects of toxic up in these animals and pockets of fish kills. That might affect little local groups. But again, you know, speaking of what we have to lose, you know, we forget, you know, we might talk about a species and, or we're going to lose a community of animals. But when you're talking about dolphins, You're talking about individuals in a society, you know, everybody's got a brother, everybody's got a mother, some have grandkids, you know, they're complicated, sophisticated families that have generational knowledge. So it's really like a a bit about interspecies genocide in some ways when you're talking about advanced Mm -hmm. animals. You know, they're top of the food chain also, which affects everything. But you're really talking about losing cultures of animals and individuals.
1: Is there any possibility in the long term that you could see extinction in, in any of these animals?
3: Um, you know, anything's possible. Most of the species in the Gulf of Mexico and along our coast are fa- fairly common in the ocean. So you might not lose the species per se, um, but you certainly could lose localized uh, communities and family groups. There's no doubt about that.
1: Uh, what about the lifestyle of people in the Gulf now along these uh, shorelines of Louisiana, Florida and other states that really rely on the fishing industry uh, as a way to make a living? Are there any dangers in your mind as to them continuing with that at the moment?
3: Well, they they have a long road ahead. I mean, you know, human ecology is certainly affected by environmental effects uh, like they're going on in the Gulf. I mean, it's a huge impact. I I really don't know the recovery of of fish populations and shellfish. That's really going to be a nightmare on that coast. And, you know, it could very well be a nightmare in the Keys. You know, we haven't talked about the Keys, but uh, that's an incredibly shallow coral area that will be extremely affected
2: uh, when things come around this coast, Uh, or uh, the deep water even.
1: And given that our listeners are worldwide, how far away at the moment, Pat O'Brien, would you say that the... The concentration of oil is from the Keys area.
2: Well, it's—I'm uh, it, it, not certain. Uh, we've gotten a couple of different um, um, takes on that. We're not getting the the real truth, and in, in the sense, I haven't actually been out there to say. But it's—you uh, know—we're in a hundred-mile range. I mean, it actually has touched the shores of Florida, so. Um, for it to get down into the the loop and it continues to move down the state of Florida daily, for it to get into the loop with the loop current, which would bring it up the other side and send it out into, um, as we have had uh, uh, a number of experts say, to send it up the other side of the East coast of Florida Uh, is not too far away. I'm from what projections I've heard. I, I just talked to, um, uh, some of our guests that had been on with us uh, before, uh, they're saying maybe 120 days it would be in the the Keys at the most, and that a wind would bring it in even quicker. Um, uh, that we're already seeing some oil spills that are actually north of the Keys, up on Marathon Key. However, we don't know if that's the one, uh, whether that was towed by a ship that came up onto that um, shore or not. Uh, it it is indefinitely uh, line the Florida loop goes over the Florida Keys and then it will go up. It'll hit into Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, uh, come back in again around Marathon, Cocoa Beach, up into Jacksonville, and as far as Wilmington, North Carolina. Just naturally, that's without any kind of a a wind. Those are projections that we've had from a number of different people. Uh, it will. Um, it will taint the beaches in, in a very significant way.
1: Dr. Herzing, we haven't yet talked about the hurricane systems, which they are suggesting, organizations are suggesting, that those weather patterns may be severe this year. Once a hurricane hits the Gulf area, uh, notwithstanding whether they actually hit inland, What are those dangers then upon the food chains and the dolphins in that area?
3: Well, you know, the Gulf of Mexico has been actually very lucky already this summer because typically this time of the year there are kind of a few storms that have gone through the Gulf of Mexico and stirred things up. So they're running out of time. They really need to finish killing the well if they're going to kill it because it's pretty inevitable. Um,
0: I can tell you...
3: Something that happened with hurricanes in our area, in the Bahamas, in um, 2004, we had some extreme storms uh, directly hit our study site where we had been studying animals by then uh, for 20 years. And the next field season, when we went out there, and this is a natural disaster, mind you, a hurricane, we were missing 30% of both our species, 30% of our spotted dolphins and 30% of our bottlenose dolphins. And just last year, just in 2009, they started recovering, and by that I mean started acting normal, socializing normal, uh, eating normal, reproducing normal. So that was a natural disaster, and in that disaster, they probably drowned or maybe lost some uh, food sources on a secondary basis. But So a natural impact of a hurricane on a dolphin population is chaotic. You know, they're going to drown or wash ashore from, from being separated from their group. Um And again, combine that with the fact that dolphins have to breathe. And in a hurricane, you've got huge waves. You've got spray and mist in the air. If it's the oil plume that's churning up in that mist, they're going to be not only breathing normal air that's full of fumes of oil, but they're going to be water particles that they're inhaling. So it's a potential nightmare as far as uh, air-breathing animals, including turtles as
1: well. Geographically with the Gulf, Dr. Herzing, are the dolphins in that area trapped in a specific area that they cannot escape from?
3: Well, they're not necessarily trapped. Um, Like I mentioned before, there are coastal species that tend to live in the shallower areas, and then there are the deep water species. Um, Some are resident, some may be migratory. But it's a little bit of a fallacy uh, to think that they're going to detect an oil spill and maneuver around it. I mean, part of the reason these animals live there is they have critical habitats. They have certain oceanographic features they follow for food, as do fish. Uh, They have certain shallow areas they might need for giving birth and protection. So when we talk about dolphins and whales, we usually talk about critical habitats they need for some reason. And if all of a sudden they've got a 500-mile wide oil spill and toxic uh, water columns, where do they go?
1: What is it you think at this stage are the immediate solutions, uh, not only for the problem with the dolphins and the food chains, but also for people in that area?
3: Well, I mean, they definitely need to keep monitoring. I mean, I would like to see personally more cleanup efforts in the offshore areas and in the water column. You know, it's great we're skimming water off the surface, but dispersing, it might have been the worst idea in the sense that it's hanging in the water column or it's sunk to the bottom where animals are immediately going to eat it and die. Um, I'd like to see some giant process in there sucking up that water and cleaning it up. You know, I mean, it's kind of silly to put poison in with more poison and make it even worse and then have to clean it up. But I don't know if that could be done. I mean, I hear about a lot of interesting projects and technologies. Um, You know, as far as the people, boy, I tell you, they're just going to have to keep um, working at what they're doing, clean up their environment. And, you know, nature is resilient. You know, if we give nature a little support, it'll come back. It's just that we've really messed it up here. So somehow we've got to just keep supporting it and hope that pockets of it can be vibrant and survive. You know, we probably need to do more work in the marshes. You know, the wetlands are huge, huge issues for uh, reproduction of a lot of species.
1: Do you think that the application of this uh, material that they're using that corrects it should be stopped immediately?
3: Yeah, from everything I've heard, it uh, probably should have never been put in there. Um, I listened to Susan Shaw's interview on, on your program, uh, which is very telling. And, uh, you know, of course, she, among others, are the toxicology experts. And they know exactly the process of these chemicals and, and what it does to a lot of animals systems and yeah it seems like there are other non-toxic ways to help disperse oil it's just that you know the technologies aren't owned by the oil companies I guess so it's another example of profit over principle.
1: Pat O'Brien the corporate conflicts that we have here with BP and with the government it seems to be proving a major lack of leadership or willing to get a lot more done. How are people thinking down in Florida right now about this situation?
2: Well, again, um, you know what, I have seen a a bit of an enlightenment. Now, there has been a a few articles uh, and news stories done regarding this Brexit product. I think uh, we're starting to get as angry here as they are in the Louisiana and Alabama area uh, I think the word is, is leaking out about uh, this corrected product and the combination of uh, Nelco Corporation that makes the product that BP buys uh, that has been outlawed since 1998 in the U.K., at and again reviewed in 2010. And they had a stockpile of this and just literally dumped it on us with the idea that this thing could get under control quick enough and that if the oil didn't come up onto the beaches and they were able to disperse it, uh, that uh, we wouldn't be as angry as as, uh, Americans. I I guess that's what the story was. Uh, But we are angry. And uh, we're watching our livelihoods go down, the clam farms, oyster beds, the uh, third of the food population of the uh, United States just being wiped out. Dolphins, which you know, I, I've looked in a dolphin eye. Can dolphins cry? Do, do dolphins have feelings? Well, they don't necessarily
3: cry, as you're probably thinking, but they do express grief. You know, they they are well, you know they're mammals. They have they play, they love, they have fun, and they fight and they get angry, they have the full emotional uh, menu that, that we do, you know, most of us think, anyway. And they, they can show sadness, they can get depressed, you know, they have abilities to have all the complex brain and psychological challenges that any complex mammal does. I know they struggle for help, they help each other, in fact, Again, you know, your, your show with uh, Susan Shaw, she's telling the story of the dolphin exhaling oil from its blowhole and seeking out human help. I mean, how more poignant could that be? You know, here's a dolphin who's usually altruistic to other species and its own kind and sometimes humans searching out humans for help because it's drowning in oil.
2: As a, a Floridian now, I feel as if I'm a dolphin in a lot of ways. We're not knowing what's really going on around us because we're not being told the truth. And we have all of these feelings that are that are coming up, the feelings of anger, the feelings of sadness, uh, watching uh, as close as we are to the story, watching these people with their livelihoods, trying to figure out what they're doing. Uh, and I see that this thing as having an impact unprecedented to many other disasters because a hurricane, we can get over. A, a earthquake, we can get over. This, this, we're not going to get over for so many years and so many changes are gonna come as we have seen in the Exxon Valdez spill. Just one tanker went down, they used the same corrective product and now 21 years later, it's still destroyed up there.
1: Let me ask you, Dr. Herzing, what is the main source of food, of nutrients for dolphins? Uh,
3: Probably fish, fish and squid,
2: depending
1: on the species. So if the food chains are going to be affected in that Florida loop, as as Pat O'Brien had talked to, could it be that that's the way that dolphins in the Atlantic region could become affected as well?
3: Oh, absolutely. That, that would be the long-term impact. They could potentially starve to death or they could have plenty of fish to eat that are just toxic and then the dolphins accumulate their toxicity in their system and pass it on to their young through milk or just end up having depressed immune systems. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the probably given long-term impacts of putting poison in your environment is it's
1: going to come up the food chain. I was very interested by Pat O'Brien's expression of fear and grief there in human beings. This is obviously going to be shared in the dolphin community and and any mammal in in the sea. How does that work with dolphins, Dr. Herzing? Can they be very, very badly affected to the point where they cannot breed, they cannot continue as a species? Uh, Of course. In fact,
3: um, there's some evidence that that actually happened from the Exxon Valdez spill in uh, 89. Um, There were two populations of killer whales that were monitored uh, before the spill, actually, and then about 16 years after the spill. And both of them lost about 30 to 40 percent of those individuals, and they did not recover reproductively, um, primarily because, again, they're mammals, they're slow reproducers, they might give birth every three to four years. So if you wipe out 30 percent of the population, you're not going to have enough females of mature age to get pregnant, to give birth, so on and so on. So, yeah, absolutely, there are points where a goose will not recover because of their inability to reproduce. And, as we know, toxins in the environment, you know, they can be, uh, affect endocrine systems, they can affect all sorts of things, specifically reproduction.
1: As a scientist, as a researcher, do you feel in some way a benefit by the fact that this situation occurred off the coastline of America and and not somewhere else in the world where we did not have access through information or, or access of the, the critical nature of this disaster?
3: Well, I'm not sure I'd call it a benefit. I think our job becomes to monitor it and explore it and to stop it from happening again. I mean, yes, there is some baseline and precedent that we can draw upon as we watch the changes. But I'm not happy it happened here at all. I mean, the Gulf of Mexico already had a dead zone, for example, from agricultural runoff on the West Coast. So it was already challenged in certain areas. Um, I think it's, it's actually in some ways it's worse because in this country we have a Marine Mammal Protection Act. We have things that protect many of these species. you know. Interestingly, we've been trying to protect them from the effects of sound during seismic operations. There's a whole program when you're seismically exploring. You have to have a marine mammal observer on board to determine whether there are any species in the area to be affected by the sound. But what we apparently missed is the fact that these other regulatory devices and laws were not being monitored very well. and In fact, they're going to cause the larger problems.
1: If the dolphins are going to migrate away from this entire area, is it likely that we could see dolphins uh, move away into other oceans, uh, perhaps into the Indian Ocean or oceans uh, that that could be thousands and thousands of miles away from where we can monitor their movements? Uh,
3: personally, I think that's probably unlikely. Um it's probably more likely that they're going to stay there and eat painted fish, or just starve to death because of, you know, they have probably a lack of knowledge about the bigger world too. Remember, they're you know living in a certain area, and not so many species are willing to leave their critical habitat. Now there have been instances of that thing happening off the California coast. I know during an El Nino year there was a displacement of one species that left and another moved in the area because of changes in the prey species. So they might follow prey away. But, again, remember you're talking about all sorts of challenges. You start moving into another area as a species, and you're going to have competition with other dolphins that live in the place you're moving to. Um, We see that with climate change already in places like Bangladesh. There's researchers there that have documented, uh, you know, changing sea level, pushing animals closer together, and all of a sudden you've got competition for habitat, so it it gets pretty complex, and it's probably not going to be the normal behavior of a species or a community to leave an area and sort of just go somewhere else, because frankly, probably all the niches are, are full that can be full,
2: so it's going to be a problem.
1: In conclusion, what are your thoughts here, Dr. Herzing? Do you think that this is going to be a considerable impact not only on dolphins and and sea life, but also on human beings in that area for some time to come?
3: Yeah, like I said, I I think this is just something unprecedented. I, I think we're going to be dealing with it for a century. And I think the challenge is going to be learning from it and taking action from it as soon as possible because we have these issues all around the world, unchecked uh, natural system problems that are are corrupted for various reasons of of money and lack of regulation. And I I think it's really going to determine how we survive and how the
2: ecosystems that we depend
1: on survive. What about for listeners? How can they better educate themselves on this situation and specifically in your area educate themselves on the the lives of dolphins?
3: Well, again, there are a lot of local resources, there are government agencies that are certainly monitoring uh, all the protected species in the Gulf of Mexico and, and around U.S. waters. Um, you, know, you can go to our website, we, we try to update people a little bit from what we find. Um, you know, I would say, you know, watch your local media, make your voice heard, you know, and try to stay aware and incorporate nature into the plan. You know, I mean, we're all consumers, you know, we all Drive cars and some of us use boats for our work, like myself. And it's important to think about the need for renewable energy sources and to be a voice and demand that as a consumer. Probably the
1: most important. Thing. Pat O'Brien, in your state of Florida, do you think that there is a general consciousness and awareness of those needs, of the way that that is expressed by Dr. Herzing?
2: I don't really think yet. I do believe that this um, this whole disaster that we're being faced with is going to put that in more of a perspective. But uh, you know, our cities are, are are far away. Our mass transportation uh, isn't very good. Uh, there are this is a, a it is a, a tourism state. It's meant to be driven through to see the different changes in it and. No, I think people kind of, even our locals, I think we kind of get away as as an escape in our own place to go down to the Florida Keys, uh, a beautiful area, uh, too. Uh, there are there are hills in uh, the, the central part of the state that you can go to. There are beautiful golf courses and whatever, but we don't have the mass transportation that you have, and i don't i don't think that we not that we try to abuse energy but at the same time we kind of assume there should be enough and yes you know there are going to be alternative um uh energies to come but i still believe our state is taking the position of don't grill i think that's an error i think in uh way louisiana is where they know that there has to be a gap until that that renewable energy comes online in a significant way, that it's going to take petroleum in order to get us there. And I think we've got to balance those in the use. And I don't believe that we need to be going offshore to find it. I know there's plenty of oil here. They've even found caps, that, uh, wells that have been tapped in the Gulf that they know there is more oil there that they could be tapping into. Yeah. The thing is, there is plenty of energy But we do have to go to renewable energy, but we have to get a way to get there. And I think that's the balance that we either swing too far left or too far right on, that there isn't enough balance to maybe even get us there. And this disaster is going to be um, a horrible impact to that whole scenario.
1: Dr. Herzing, uh, what are your plans in the coming months? Are you going to be visiting that area and uh, sizing up the situation and what can be done for the dolphins?
3: Well, actually, I'm in the the middle of my field season in the Bahamas right now, so we're monitoring out there and in the Gulf Stream as we go back and forth uh, from the east coast of Florida. So we'll be actually keeping uh, track on this area, and we are also trying to start, well, we started last year, actually, some work off the Florida coast to document the species that are here. So we'll probably focus on both the Bahamas and the coast of Florida down to the Keys to try to document what species there are and where they are before the oil comes around the corner.
1: What would be your final message, Dr. Herzing, for people listening to this program? Can we hope for a good outcome with this in your mind? Should we hope for a good outcome? Should we be optimistic in the long term for the sake of our children?
3: I think we have to be optimistic for the sake of our children and for the planet's health, but I think we have to, we're going to, it's going to be a painful educational experience and it's going to require moving through the pain into action. And I think that's what's going to determine the
1: end. Dr. Herzing and Pat O'Brien, thank you for joining the program today. I do appreciate your participation and I do wish you well, Dr. Herzing, with your research work you very much and to our listeners i hope that you have enjoyed this program and gained more evidence and information about the severity of the situation in the gulf and hope that you can stay tuned to discover what we need to do in the future to overcome these severe problems and create a better future for our children you can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening. To the people of the Gulf, how do you feel? Pain and suffering? Pain for your children? You must feel heavy in heart. As you watch this destruction take place, we can all share that together. There's no need for you to take the burden as those that live in that area. We must share that burden with you. We must give you our love. We must sing praise to you. And we must know that all of us together will once again return to those beautiful lands and walk along those beautiful coastlines and look out to sea and look upon nothing but gentleness nothing but water untarnished by man's hand we will see all the animals in the sea all the fish they will return they will return and we will enjoy them and we will be blessed by this ocean so for now be strong, and we shall be strong with you, always, with you in our hearts, inspired by you, inspired by your strength, inspired to know that you will never give up, and that your children, once again, will feel the beauty of that land. We join you in heart and minds with love pouring out over you because you know and we know that one day this will all be a distant memory. Don't feel sad. Know that this is for a reason. It is a wake-up call. A wake-up call to man's greed. A wake-up call that we have to step up. We have to step up to change things. To change minds. To change people from doing these terrible deeds. We can do it together. So for now, while your pain exists, and your heart bleeds, and your children suffer, know that that will not be forever and not in vain. It was brought here for a reason, and we have been elected as those who will take care of our oceans and our coastlines and our lands. So for now, while the pain is heavy, we will endure. We will feel the sadness. We will feel the pain. Together. And one day, you and I and all of our children will run along those beaches laughing and prancing with hot sand under our feet, again enjoying everything that God has given us in this wonderful world. Without oil, without any man-made obstacle, we shall endure, and I will endure this with you, and all of us will come to your aid. So never fear, you are not alone, none of us are alone, all of us are affected by this terrible deed that man has placed upon the oceans, and eventually, you will be the ones, the chosen ones, to correct the wrongs, and we will be there with you, to create